Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 17th Sunday after Trinity, September 26, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would at this time invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6, verses 10 through 16, and verses 24 through 29. can be found on page 224 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name various selections from Numbers chapter 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And then verse 10, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And then verses 24 through 29. So Moses went out and told all the the people all the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Heavenly Father, these are your words, and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Our Old Testament lesson this morning has to be among the strangest I've preached on during this year we spent together in the Old Testament. You have the very odd 
and specific grumbling against God from the highly dramatic people of Israel. Whining for fish, for cucumbers, for melons, for leeks, for onions, and for garlic in the face of God's miraculous provision of manna. You have Moses snapping and throwing it all back at God, asking for death because he's finally had enough of these whiners. And finally, you have the curious cases of Eldad and Medad, who did not make it to the anointing rite at the tabernacle, and who we see wandering about the camp prophesying. What on earth is going on here? It's, it, uh, to be honest, and to be just a little bit cynical, this seems like the sort of thing the Holy Spirit dropped into the Old Testament just to make sure we were paying attention. It, it is just so strange that it would be here that we see all these things come together in one narrative. But I think if we look consecutively and in isolation at the three sections selected from our lectionary this morning, we'll identify a pattern that will allow us to see the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God in the gospel shine through, even as it applies to us today. So, first, the section on verses 4 through 6. And what God is presenting to us here in this initial section is the shallowness of sin. The theme of sin here is readily identifiable. The Israelites have allowed themselves to be ungrateful in the face of their unmet passions, and this has caused them to miss God's grace, mercy, and provision. Here's what we know about Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6. First, this isn't the first time the Israelites have grumbled against God. Now, that happened almost immediately after they emerged from the Red Sea, free from slavery and dry for that matter. This also isn't the first time that the Israelites have grumbled about food. In fact, why we have manna in the first place is because the Israelites repeatedly grumble about food. But here's what really should jump out and slap us in the face. The Israelites' unrepentant sin. And what it does for them time and time again, whether you're in Exodus, whether you're in Numbers, whether you skip ahead to any other point in the Old Testament, it causes them to lose sight of the grace of God and doubt His will for them. And that's exactly where we are before God as sinners. As soon as we let sin creep back into our lives and have rain, we lose sight of the grace of God and we doubt his good and gracious will for us. And in doing so, we deny not only God's good and gracious will, but his good and gracious disposition, his character. Rather than grateful appreciation for what God has provided for us, sin puts us in a posture 
of what have you done with me lately? What have you done for me lately with God? What ends up happening is that our passions and our desires and our lusts end up replacing God's word in our life. And this is primarily due to the fact that we look for God's word, we look for God's will in our lives apart from his word. And so we train ourselves to listen for God in places where he hasn't revealed himself to be. And sooner or later, what happens is you will tune your ear not to the voice of God, but to your own inner voice, to your own inner rumblings, and think this is where God wants you to be, <clears throat> and this is what God wants you to have. And when these passions and these desires and these lusts go unfulfilled, we act before God like petulant children. We let ourselves get deceived into thinking God is abandoning or ignoring or punishing us. When that happens, we fail to look at the many ways in which God has already blessed us. But really, when that happens, and just like the Israelites here in Numbers 11, we miss the reality that God has already delivered us. We miss the reality that we are saved, that we have been bought from slavery, that we are redeemed. We ignore the Word and the Spirit of God for our own Word and our own Spirit. Now jumping ahead to verse 10. What we see with Moses is the rawness of emotion. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And skipping ahead to verse 15, if you will treat me like this, kill me at once, if I find favor in your sight, that I may not see my wretchedness. Now, at first glance, it may appear that Moses falls into the same sins as the people of God that have been placed under his care. Maybe he has. I think if you read the verses in between and you know Moses' pattern of overreacting to things, we could clue in to that this is what has happened. Especially take time to read verses 21 through 23 here in Moses' reaction. But that's not the initial focus of Moses' angry appeal to God. Moses' exchange with God in verses 10 through 15 describes to us the real issue behind the scenes, at least from Moses' perspective. He's exhausted. He's fatigued. He's found himself in the midst of yet another conflict, and Moses turns to God completely flabbergasted in the rawness of his emotions because he knows not what to do. Whereas the sin of the Israelites has caused them to replace God's word with their own desires, Moses seeks out God's will. He seeks out God's word. And as God responds, he cares for Moses. 
I cannot tell you how many times as a pastor this sort of thing has happened to me. Maybe it's because of our Norwegian heritage, and maybe because of it's a desire for earnest piety in our lives, but whatever the case, many people have come to me completely afraid to bear their emotions before God in prayer. For whatever reason, we think it's a highly spiritual thing to bury our emotions, to, not, to deny that they exist, or even worse, to believe that they in and of themselves are sinful. Now, I'm not saying that they might not be sinful. They might be sinful. But simply to have emotions is not what God is forbidding here. And when people come to me with these struggles and with this confusion in their lives, my response has almost always been the same. Go and read the Psalms. Go and immerse yourself in the language of emotion from Scripture. For a people, and I mean all of us, who suffer from knowing what to do with our emotions, the Psalms are God's gifts to us. The Psalms don't pull punches. They deal directly and specifically and often individually with the problem of anger or of betrayal or of fear or of confusion. The Psalms touch on almost the entire gamut of human experience you would be hard-pressed to identify an emotion that isn't expressed in or addressed by the Psalms. But here's what's unique about the Psalms and what's unique about God's word for us in the Psalms and even here in Numbers 11. God's word never indulges emotion. It never treats our emotions with kid gloves but it still doesn't pretend that our emotions don't exist. The writers of the Psalms, and especially King David, lay their emotions before God, and when it happens, God always speaks to them in his word and leaves them in a place of faith. Why? Because God, in his word, always desires comfort. He always leaves his child with comfort. And that's exactly what happens here in Numbers 11. Moses lays his frustrations and his exasperation before God. He comes to God directly, and God responds with comfort and care. He leaves Moses in a place where Moses can respond to God in faith. Whereas the Israelites, in their emotions, have replaced God's word with their own, Moses, in his emotion, has sought out God's word, and God met him with comfort and care from his word and his spirit. Which leaves us finally, in the last few verses, with God's presence his grace, and his mercy. So now, the part that I've really been looking forward to in this passage, we get to deal with Eldad 
and Medad and their mysterious prophesying, something I have to admit, in 41 years as a Christian, I have never, ever understood. I don't get it at all. I don't get what happened. I don't get why it happened. It's entirely amusing to me, the picture that Moses paints here through the Holy Spirit of these men gathered around the tabernacle, being anointed for service, and these two, whatever they were, there's really no favorable way to paint Eldad and Medad in this passage, right? Either they intentionally and rebelliously didn't go up to the tabernacle, which is entirely within the picture because of the way the Israelites have acted in the Pentateuch, or they forgot to set their alarm clocks and didn't make it out of negligence. Either way, they're in the midst of their camp doing what Eldad and Medad normally do, which appears to be wandering around aimlessly, and as they do so, they're prophesying. It's hilarious. Can you imagine the curiosity of the Israelites seeing this happen, knowing exactly what was going on up at the tabernacle because Moses told the whole people what God's plan was? And here are Eldad and Medad prophesying. And on top of that, as they're prophesying, someone tells Joshua... And then Joshua tells Moses, and they're all offended for Moses' sake. And that's the second thing I can't wrap my brain around. Because Joshua knows that the other 68 men are there at the tabernacle prophesying. Why these two? Why are these two over the line in Joshua's mind? And Moses, he gets it all. He recognizes the entire thing. Are you jealous? For my sake, Joshua, would that God's Spirit have been poured out in such a way on the entire people on that day that they would be covered by His Spirit and filled with His Word? Now first, with all of this nonsense going on, we must acknowledge that this is an answer to prayer, to Moses' prayer in particular, God has heard Moses' cries of exasperation, and he answers by putting Moses in a spiritual structure that he can handle. That Moses no longer hears the griefs and concerns of the people of God on his own. That he has help. Seventy men prepared to deal with these people alongside of Moses. The real truth here And as I thought all week about the punchline for this message, it's simply this. You cannot stop the Word and the Spirit of God. You cannot stop Him. These two elders are proof positive of that reality. Whatever their intent, whether it's foolishness, or whether it's rebelliousness, God would not be halted. They ended up prophesying too. Joshua's response of fear and panic does not stop the word of God. 
Moses about being made aware of this foe offense does not stop the word and the spirit of God. Rather, Moses gets out of the way. He lets God do what God has determined to do. And what we are witnessing in this entire exchange from the Israelites sinning to God's pouring out of his word and his spirit is God's grace and his mercy in action. And I find that it perfectly mirrors for us the structure of the Apostles' Creed. God's miraculous provision of manna at the beginning of the passage, as well as God's provision of the 70 elders for Moses are perfect examples for us of God's fatherly provision for us in creation. And how many times have we come to God with material needs without realizing that God has provided for us materially up to this point and without resting our hopes in the knowledge that God will continue to provide for us materially. When we confessed earlier this morning that I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth, it is our acknowledgement that this is what God does and this is how he acts. God provides. The shirt on your back and the shoes on your feet and the transportation God used to get you here, and the food you're going to consume throughout the day, and your very next breath. All that is a provision from God the Father who loves you. On the flip side, the appearance of God's Spirit and the distribution of God's Word among the people is a perfect example of how the Holy Spirit works to sanctify us in the third article of the Creed. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It is a promise that as God has worked to sustain you physically, God also works to sustain you spiritually. That's why you're here. The Word and the Spirit of God cannot be stopped, and here's why. In between those two poles is the most glorious reality of all built right into this section. God's provision physically and God's provision spiritually both flow out of God's act of deliverance. God's salvation. The people had manna, because they had been delivered out of Egypt and God was providing for them miraculously as they marched on their way to the promised land. And now the people had elders and even a leader in Moses because God provided for them spiritually to be sustained in their faith in him. And this is exactly where you and I come in 3,500 years after all of this happened. Because this is what God does for you on a daily basis. God provides for all your material needs. God provides for all your spiritual needs through the trials and difficulties of life. But always, God works His grace and His mercy in your life because He has delivered you. And in delivering you, he hasn't ignored your sin. 
He's dealt with your sin. He's forgiven your sin. He's overcome your sin. God's Word and His Spirit cannot be stopped. Now sometimes, to be sure, and the Israelites are going to find out again really soon if you keep reading through Numbers chapter 11, God works through His words of law and circumstances in creation to drive you to repentance. Because the reality is, when we sin, the last thing we want to do is repent. We want to stand on our rightness, especially when we are the most wrong. But God brings pain and suffering and whatever else He needs in life to drive you to repentance because in repentance, God always forgives. He always saves. He always delivers. Whatever the situation in your life right now that you are going through, God is there to provide for you to pour out on you His grace and His mercy and to care for you. His Word and His Spirit cannot be stopped. They're for you. In fact, you and the rest of the church are the final answer to Moses' prayer in this passage. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. As it stands right now, for those of you who have been baptized, and for those of you who have faith, you have God's Spirit. It has been gifted to you. And while you may not be a prophet, in the strictest, most prophetic sense of the word, you have God's Word. It is with you all the time. And it is in this word that God reminds you that he comforts you, that he cares for you all of the time because it is this word that points you to Jesus. It is this word that reminds you, he who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not continue to give us all things? And so the next time... You feel like sitting back and whining about fish and cucumbers and watermelon. Remember that God loves you, that he has provided for you, and he will continue to provide for you. And the next time when you are earnestly and sincerely exhausted in your faith, brought to the end of yourself, remember that God has provided for you the gospel message that is sure and certain because Jesus hung from the cross in your place and Jesus rose again to conquer your enemies. Amen. And now... May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.